Okay, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. I meant to do that last week, but yeah, some guy got talking too much and couldn't get that far. So uh, we're in chapter 4, starting chapter 4 this week. And uh, we know that the first problem, uh, number one problem that uh, Paul addressed was they were fighting. And the particular thing that they were fighting and arguing over was, well, I like Paul. Another guy says, no, no, I like Apollos. And then somebody else said, no, no, I like Peter. And somebody else said, well, no, I like Christ. And they're fighting back and forth about that. And in chapter 1 right away, in chapter 2, Paul says, that's got to stop. You've got to stop that arguing and fighting. And then in chapter 3, he got a little more intent. And he said, now look, there's a reason you're fighting. Because you haven't grown up spiritually. You're like little babies. And I can't talk to you like adults. I've got to talk to you like children. And is that the reason that you fight and argue so much? And we've got to stop that. And when it comes to chapter 4, there's a lot of thinking uh, to get through this chapter 4. And I think Paul is very troubled. He's mentioned it in a couple places, mentioned it, needed to stop, explained what it was, and then he told them why they were doing it, and he really drove that nail home. You're carnal, you're not growing up as Christians, and that's why you argue and fight. And he really gave it to them there. But he's going to give it to them a little more. (laughs) This is bothering Paul. And I understand why, I think. Uh, He was one of the ones that name was used in the argument. He says, you're fighting over me. And that really bothers him that his work there, and remember, he's the one that came and founded the church at Corinth. He walked in and started preaching Jesus and uh, was successful and founded this church. And this church is doing okay. It's doing all right. There's a lot of people there. They've done all right since he left. But he's writing to correct some things. And he's a little troubled that he was one of these ones who are in this argument. And he's thinking to himself, they don't understand what it is uh, to do what I do. And I really want to get it corrected. And so I'm going to call chapter 4 a pastor's heart. A pastor's heart. He's going to talk about things he feels and how you should treat a pastor. So it always embarrasses me to talk about this. <laughs> and I used to thinking, ah, I'm just going to skip that. But I can't skip it. It's here in the text. And so we're going to talk about the pastor's heart and why he's troubled so much by this, that he was part of that argument. Well, they shouldn't have been. And he's told them over and over why. But he's going to go a little farther. And he's going to help them to understand maybe what it is to be a pastor. And how they should respond to him. Because it's very different than sitting in a pew. All right? And it's easy for somebody to say, ah, you ought to go like this or go out a little like that. And he's, he's concerned with that. So he's going to give us some steps on how to think 
how to behave, how to think about a pastor, and how to view people like Paul. And so uh, we're going to begin chapter 4 and work down through it, and then hopefully we get into chapter 5. With that guy who just stopped talking. <laughs> chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us, us ministers, as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. All right, so how do you think about me? How do you give account of me? How do you think about me as a pastor? He says, I want you to think of me as a steward. And he's a steward of mysteries, the mysteries of God. He's a steward. And a steward is a special name that he uses about himself because a steward is somebody uh, put in charge of what somebody else owns. So if you're a steward, you don't own it. But you're in charge of taking care of it. Uh, you're a caretaker. And a caretaker is a good way to put it. And he says, so when you think about me, he says as a pastor, you think about what I'm doing, I want you to think of me as a steward. I'm in charge of something that's not mine. First of all. Secondly, he says, I want you to think of me as in charge of mysteries, the mysteries of God. So, uh, point being, he's got two sides to this. Uh, there's a certain respect that he wants us to have. So he says, think of us as stewards, so don't think not too highly of us. Not too highly, because we're just in charge of somebody else's thing. So don't say, well, look at that, it's fantastic. No, I'm just a servant in charge of somebody else's thing. And then he says, think of us as being in charge of the mysteries, and so don't think not too lowly. <laughs> All right? Don't think too highly. Don't say, these ministers are fantastic. No, he said, don't you think, oh, they're no big deal. They're stewards. They're in charge of somebody else's. These are God's things. And God said to the minister, to Paul here, explain what I have said. Open up the mysteries and get things out. So we don't overvalue a pastor, and neither do we undervalue a pastor. All right? It's careful to be on both sides. All right? So we don't look at him like he's a god. But we don't look at him like, eh, who cares? He's nobody. He's somebody. He's in charge of mysteries and explaining what God says. So he says, that's a way to think of us. Now, I get you to balance it out. And then two, here's the proof of it. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. He, he says, so if you want to look at a minister... And you're saying, well, how's he doing? Well, is he faithful? There it is, number one. He is required to be faithful. He has to be always there. He has to be always prepared. So is he faithful? And that's really a judge of what it is. Is he faithful or is he not? I'm, I remember there was a lady here who didn't like me much at all. And she she left, and I, you know, that happens. And so she saw me years later. She says, are you still at it? 
I said, yes, I am. I'm still at it. I'm still at it. Okay, so it's required of a minister to be faithful. He has to be. If he's given the mysteries of God, it's his job to explain things, and then he's got to be faithful. All right. And so and when we're looking at our pastors, and we say, well, how do we look at them? Not too highly, not too low. What do we do? Well, here's a good question. Are they faithful? Are they faithful? Can we always count on them? That's a good point that he makes in your thought of how we're going to view a pastor. Now, here we go. Verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing I should be judged of you. Or man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. So he says here, uh, here's what I wanted you to know. I don't care what you think. <laughs> it's not, I'm in charge of the mysteries of God, and I have to faithfully carry that out. And whether you like it or not, really doesn't have anything to do with it. That's not how I'm going to judge it. All right? He says, so I really am not concerned whether you like it or not. And certainly, uh, there's people who didn't like Paul. And anybody's a pastor, remember old A.W. Tozer was one of the great pastors of the last century. Uh, fantastic, brilliant man. Wrote a lot of wonderful books. And somebody said to him, do you have enemies? He said, I got one for every year I've been alive. He said, I got plenty of them. Yeah, and that's about how it goes. Uh, but the point is, if somebody doesn't like what you do, that's, that's not, he said, I'm not going to take that into consideration. He says, if somebody judges that, and he says, as a matter of fact, uh, what any man thinks of me, it doesn't matter. And then he says, I don't even judge my own self. I don't even judge my own self. Um, and so there's an important thing. Uh, how do we view the way people look at us as pastors? He says, well, I don't take that much into consideration. All right, that's not what I'm concerned about. It's like the lady who said to me, you know, are you still at it? I don't care whether she likes it or not. It doesn't bother me. Uh, and it's always going to be people who don't like something you do. I've had plenty of them who said didn't like something I do. Uh, but he says, I can't, I have to. The first thing for me is, it's verse 4, I know nothing by myself. I am not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. And so when we're first going to do something, we've got to remember, if I get God's approval, then that's all I need. I don't need anybody else's approval. That's what he's saying. He says, I let God be the judge. He's the one that judges me. That's very much the case. A lot of people have said to me, well, who are you thinking about when you write a sermon? It ain't you. <laughs> it ain't you. All right? When I'm thinking about a sermon and working it through in my head and trying to figure it out, I'm asking God, uh, let me get this right. I want to understand this. And sometimes it's hard. And then sometimes I'm up and you sit up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I say, I don't get it. And I got to hurry up and preach this. So you better help me. And God will help you to understand, and all of a sudden, 
something will become clear to you. You might find something in a book where it explains it. You're searching, doing your best to understand it. And all of a sudden it becomes clear and you get that. It's what it is, is worship. It's worship. It rises up in the heart. They thank you. I got it. I get it. And that's all the approval I need. And if I say what from there, what got his approval, I don't care what you think. Right? Now, I don't like to, when you say that, you say, well, uh, would I walk up to somebody like Paul says, and say, you're carnal? <laughs> it's not my style. I go up to somebody and say, yeah, you're a mess. Look at you. Mm-hmm. All right? That's not how I operate. Never going to be how I operate. But if I'm going through the text, and it says in the text, are you not carnal? I'm going to say it because it's in the text. Right? So you don't go around saying, hey, you, or you, or you. You're carnal. No. But when it comes to the text, you're going to say, are you carnal? I'm going to say it. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Therefore, because of that, because I'm, as a steward, I'm required to be faithful. And if I'm faithful, then it doesn't matter to me what people think, what men think of me. He said, not even what I think of me. I could be wrong. If I got God's approval, that's good. So, because of that, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who, will bring, uh, <coughs> who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and shall every man have praise of God. So, part of the thing about a pastor, or really anybody, but a pastor here, is he said, you need to be very slow to judge. You need to pull back and uh, not so censoring of people, not so critical. You do that too quickly. You need to be so, why? Because there's a day coming, what does he say, uh, when the Lord will come. And the Lord is going to be the judge. Because you don't know the secret motives of a heart. And you don't know the way people, uh, we try not to assign bad motives to what somebody does. You don't know those things in people's hearts. So we're not really fit to be judges. And he says, so don't do it. Don't be in a rush to judgment. I didn't like that. I'm going to tell him. Okay, you know, don't be in a rush to do that. He says, hold it back. So when you're about to say, he should not have done that, stop. Wait. All right. God will take care of that. And so he's talking about their opinion of him. And he's telling us, it's verse 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Paulus for your sake. I'm telling you this because of Paulus, my friend, and myself were part of that argument that you had. And so I'm trying to get across a point. Don't think too highly of us, but don't think too lowly of us either. Look at us. Have we been faithful? Yeah, they have. All right. And then uh, don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to judge. You'll find you're most of the time going to judge wrong. So don't do that. All right. Warning us. Now he says, I take a pause and Paul, for your sakes, you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, 
that no one of you be puffed up for one against the other. And so this is bothering because there was actually people saying, Paul's my man and your Peter's nothing. And then somebody's saying, well, Paulus is my man and your Paul is nothing. And he said, no, no, no. Don't be puffed up or think too highly of one and too lowly of another one. And here's the reason why, verse 7. For who maketh thee to different from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why is thou glory? As thou had not received it. So he says, here's the thing. God made everybody unique. Uh, how come people are different? Because God made them different. God made people different. All right? And then he says, uh, what do you have that you didn't receive? So they say, Paul, Paul is a wonderful speaker. He's one of the best speakers in the New Testament. He said, where did he get it? It was a gift from God. God gave it to him. And so don't be surprised, you know, if we're different. God made people who they are. And you're always trying to figure out, my wife always says, well, you're like your mother today. I say, good. I like being like my mother. And then later on, she says, well, that's what your father would do. But the fact is, I'm Eric. <laughs> I'm not Odie and I'm not Evelyn, although they've had profound influence on me. I'm Eric. Just that's who I am. I didn't always agree with them. I was different. And I made different. And that's what he says. He says, so if somebody is better, is it because they said, look at me, I'm fantastic. Watch and I'll show you. No, it's because God gave them some gift. God gave them some ability. And so when we're looking at pastors, he says, remember, God gave people ability. And so that's how you're going to view it. He says, so you don't get think, well, that one that really reached a high level. No, God made him that way. Apostle Paul is brilliant. Right? One of the most brilliant men that ever lived. And how did he get to be that way? Because God made him that way. God gave him that mind, that marvelous mind. So uh, as we're watching pastors, we're going to be careful how we judge them. And remember, God made him who they are. Now, here we go. Are you ready? You're going to shoot them once again right between the eyes, people in Corinth. Verse 8. Now you are full. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. I would to God you did reign, and we might also reign with you. That's quite a statement. So you people in Corinth, you got it made, don't you? You're fantastic. If you had a longer arm, you'd break it, patting yourself on the back. You're so marvelous, the church at Corinth. You're just like kings. And you look around the rest of the world and you say, too bad your church isn't as good as ours. He says, he says I wish you really did, because we'd join you then. <laughs> But that's not quite what happened. For I think that God, verse 9, has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, to angels and to men. So he says, I want you to think a little bit. Now you think you are the best church in existence in Corinth. 
You think you're king, like you're reigning on top of the world. Now I'm going to explain to you what myself, the apostles, Peter and John and Apollos and the rest of them, I'm going to explain to you what it's like to be us. He says, we are a spectacle. Or that is, everybody looks and says, look at them. Look at that guy. Look at that guy, Paul. What are they looking at? Verse 10. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Because <laughs> we're out here doing the work of the ministry, and everybody's saying, hey, look at that, Paul. If we could kill him, we will. And they tried lots of times. They stoned him, left him for dead, beat him with rods three times. He was caught out in a, in a storm at sea. All kinds of terrible things happened to him. He says, oh, we're fools. Of course, you're not. You're wise, aren't you? He's getting a real shot. We're weak, but you're strong, aren't you? Uh, you're honorable, but we're despised. He's trying to get their point of view straightened around. He says, here's what's, what is for us. Uh, verse 11, even to this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted, beaten, have no certain dwelling place, and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat, we are made as filth of the world as the offscouring of all things unto this day. We are the scum of the earth, that's what he just said. We're the scum of the earth. Everybody's after us. And he says, we're hungering and thirsting. And he, when he wrote one of his letters, he said, I don't have a coat. I left one behind. If somebody could bring me a coat, it would be nice. He didn't have a coat. All right? And he's working his own self. He pays, or he was a tent maker, and that's how he got by. And nobody gave him money. He worked himself. He said, reviled? Oh, yes. They did all sorts. They drove him out of Jerusalem. They drove him out of Ephesus. <laughs> he had to hide. Uh, they led him over the wall in a basket to escape. I mean, he's really been knocked around. And what he's saying is, we are the stewards of the ministry. We've really had a hard life. Of course, you're perfect, aren't you? You really got your act together. And he's talking to the church at Corinth. And so, verse 14, I write these things to not, write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. I'm not trying to make you crawl away and say, oh, gee, poor Paul. It's not what I want. I'm trying to warn you about something, how you look at us. We're the ministers of Christ. We're suffering a lot to get the message out. And so I'm not trying to shame you, but I want you to understand. Verse 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Jesus Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. There's somebody who has opened your eyes so you understand Jesus. There's somebody who has explained to you who Jesus is and has made you understand that. He said, and that for, for them, that was him. 
And he said, I opened your eyes. I was like a father to you. He said, you have a lot of teachers, people who try to instruct you, but I was the one who opened your eyes and made you understand. I was like a father to you. I was a father. He says, you don't have many people who you can point to and say, he's the one who made me understand. He's the one that opened my eyes. He's the one that did that. And so what? So respect. You have a great deal of respect for people like that. You understand that they have done something for you. You're acting like kings, like your church is the best ever. I'm your father in Christ, so be careful, all right? So we get rejected, we get beaten up, and you say you're a king. Well, (laughs) verse 16, therefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. Do what I do. All right, I work for you, I suffer for the cause, I believe in Jesus, I make it everything I do and understand. For this cause, 17, I send unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into the remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He says, so I sent somebody because you're confused about how pastors think and how to treat them, how to act towards them. So I sent Timothy to help you with that, 18. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. And people said, ah, Paul, we don't need him. Tell him he doesn't need to come here. We got everything under control. Tell Paul he doesn't need to be around here telling us what to do. He says, and, but, verse 19, I will come to you shortly. I'm coming. <laughs> if the Lord will and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. There we go. He says, I'm coming. When I get there, people who have been arguing and saying, Paul is this, he says, I'm going to check and see uh, if they have any real spiritual power. Is that what they got? Is that what they got? Or is it just talk, 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 talk? Mm-hmm. Which one is it? All right. So God uh, is going to do it. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? How do you want me to come? I'm coming. Let me come with a stick to straighten you out. Remember, my mother had a wooden spoon pulled out of the drawer, hold it up. I'm good. I will not do what I was about to do. Paul says, I'm going to bring you a stick. Is that what you want? Or do you want to just fix it yourself and try to adjust the way you think? And you've got to get rid of this idea that we're the hottest thing going. That the church in Corinth has just got it all together. And he said, he really got a problem with that. And that's what he's about to address next. All right. And so uh, he comes to the next part and he says, now, here we go. Uh, Chapter five. I'm going to point out to you that you're not so good. Matter of fact, you've got some real problems. And here's one that I'm going to point out to you because uh, I think it's a very troubling thing, and you need to get it together, take care of this problem. And he's going to tell us why. And so their perception of Paul was that he was just a, like a name you could argue about. 
He said, uh, I want you to learn how to view me. There's a pastor's heart. Don't be too highly, but not too lowly. Uh, don't be quick to judge. But remember, I'm your father. Or I opened your eyes. I helped you to understand. I taught you. So there's a respect that you have for those who were the ones that opened your eyes, that helped you to understand, have taken you uh, from not understanding to grasping truth. He says, remember uh, that. And so it's a way that they viewed him. Some people overvalued him. Some people undervalued him. Uh, some people didn't think at all what he'd done for them by founding their church. And they thought, we got our church going. It's the hottest thing ever. And uh, they're about to find out. Maybe it's not so hot. So we come to chapter 5. And this is, we're going to get down to the nitty gritty. Let's see what it's all about. Here we go. It is, com it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. All right. We come in chapter 5 to this issue, fornication. There is sexual sin. There is sexual sin among you. Fornication is a sexual sin. And he says... Uh, it, the particular one he names is that there's a, there's a young fella who's taken up with his father's wife. Now, I don't believe it's his mother, because he wouldn't say his father's wife, but I think it's his father's wife be his stepmother. Right, so here's a guy in your church in Corinth, and he's taken up with his stepmother, living with her like a, a husband and wife. He's living with his stepmother. And he said, here's the thing. The Gentiles that live around you in Corinth, the people of Corinth who could care less about God, who don't interested in God, they want their idols, they want to do what they want. They would never do that. They wouldn't do that. They would think that's a horrible thing. Who would do that? But you got it in your church. You got it right in your church. He says, and uh, they think it's ridiculous who have no morals to speak of at all. But they say, we would never do that. But that church of Corinth, they got somebody in there doing that. And so I say, wow, how does that happen? Verse, and here's the problem, verse 2. And you're puffed up. And you think, it's okay. <laughs> uh, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He said, you're happy about it. You think it's okay. You pat the guy on the back. It's a good thing. Yeah, we like it. All right? And so here's the sexual sin. It's out in public, and you support it. You are happy about it. And he said, why would they support that? Well, if you think about what we just talked about in the last chapter, okay? So, suppose this guy who's got his stepmother is in the Apollos crew. 
And he comes along and says, uh, I'm with you guys. I like Apollos. Hey, he likes Apollos. He, he's one of us. We'll take him in. He's a one of us. Uh, or maybe, maybe the guy had a lot of money. Maybe the guy had money. He was influential somewhere in Corinth as a person. Whatever it was, they said, we're happy to have him. Welcome aboard. We love to have you here. And Paul says, you can't do that. You're puffed up about it. It should have made you sad. should have made you want to cry. should have made you say, I wish this never happened. Can't we stop this? But instead, you're all, yeah, this is great. No, he's really going to get, for I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. I'm going to give you, like a judge, I'm going to tell you what this is and what you need to do about it. And he said, I don't care if I'm not there in body, personally there. I'm, my spirit is with you, and I'm with you, and so I'm going to tell you what you need to do about this guy who has come into your church, and you're fully supporting him in whatever he does, and he's doing something that the rest of the world says, no, 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 no. But you think it's okay. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's quite a thing to say. I don't know what that means. Uh, everybody wonders exactly what that means. We can kind of... Uh, make some guesses as to exactly what that means. He says, deliver that guy to Satan. All right. so let this guy here, I'm going to send him right to Satan. Wow. <clears throat> For the destruction of the flesh. So, the, one of the guesses is that uh, Paul says, you're going to have to get rid of him. You're going to have to cut him off from the church because of this terrible example that he is. And he says, so what I want you to do is give him to Satan um, to destroy his flesh that the spirit may be saved. All right. So, we don't look at him and say, that guy needs to go to hell. Let's get rid of him. That's not what we're supposed to say. All right? But he said, we've got to do something to bring him out of this kind of behavior. What are we going to do? He said, well, we're going to deliver him to Satan. And if you think about it in the Bible, we've kind of seen something exactly just like that. Remember where? Job. What happened to Job? God said, go ahead, Satan. He's yours. You can't kill him, but do what you want. What did he do to him? Well, besides killing all his family and taking away all his money, I mean, he survived that. The worst thing he did was he made him so sick he wanted to die. And he sat there 
in ashes for a whole week without speaking, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery because he's covered with boils all over so that every time he moves an inch, it just pains him terribly. And as these boils build up, he cuts them with a piece of pottery and the pus runs down his body. And he sits there and says, agony. That's what Satan did to him. For the destruction of the body to save the soul. And so as Job is sitting there in agony and scraping himself with a pot, he sits there for a whole week. He's been delivered to Satan, clearly. And he's taken his health away from him. And then when he's done, what does he say? He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He came out on top. And he says in chapter 14 of Job, Though he slay me, I will still trust in God. God kills me. I'm still going to trust in God. So the destruction of the body, says Paul, for the saving of the soul. And so he says, deliver him to Satan. Now, you say, how do you do that? I'm not going to try that. (laughs) I'm not going to try that because some people think which is another possibility, cut him off from the church. And as he gets cut off from the church, he comes from under the, out from under the protection of being in the body of Christ. There's a protection being in the body of Christ. You're in his flock. What did he say? The gates of hell will not prevail against him. So you get him out, push him out. And so that he'll, fall away from the protection. The point is, if he's so sick, if he's so bad off, uh, that there's nowhere to look but up. And that's where it takes sometimes. I know a fellow I knew that got cancer, and it was the best thing ever happened to him. It was the best thing ever happened to him. Because he kept wandering from God, wandering from God. He did some outrageous things. He got cancer, he come right back online. Stayed right straight, stayed right there. Best thing ever happened to him. Saved his soul. All right? And so, some people think it's actually to deliver him to Satan. Some people think that Paul had the power to do that. And when we read always about our communion service, what does it say? So let a man examine himself. And then let him eat that bread and drink in that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself. And for this cause, many are sick. And some have even died. Or in other words, uh, there are people who have ignored the blood, ignored the way to be forgiven and turn their back on it and refuse to let go of it. And he said, they suffered and they turned sick and they got sickly. And I do believe in my lifetime I have seen people who are sickly because of that. I do believe that. So when he says here, I want you to deliver this guy to Satan, is, is, he, is Paul have the power to put a sickness on him? I don't know. I don't have that power. I know that. Uh, and uh, 
One of the things about excommunicating somebody, putting them out of a church, is that back here in Corinth, all right, if they go to this fellow and they say, you can't come here now. Your behavior is such that it's a shame to all of us. We're, we're ashamed of it. We feel terrible for it. We're ashamed of your behavior. And the world out there, for that matter, is ashamed of your behavior. People who don't even believe in God are ashamed of your behavior. And he said, so uh, you put them out. And so if you're in Corinth and you get tossed out of the church, where are you going? There's only one church in Corinth. Right? Next one's 100 miles away in Philippi or something. It's not like today. So we live in a different kind of age because there's a church here and then there's one over there and another one there and another one there. And so whenever we come to a disciplinary situation, people just say, I'm gone, see you. Out they go. I mean, we haven't done it much in the history of this church uh, because we understand that that's kind of what happens. But we have done it. We have said to people, you cannot continue that behavior in this church. We can't have it here. And they just walk out the door and you never see them again. One guy walked out the door, came back six months later, said, I want to come back. I said, what are you doing in that other church you went? Oh, I'm helping the pastor. I said, you keep helping him. That's okay. You go help him. You've got to learn that there's for behavior, uh, there is consequences. And I think that's what the point of this is, is he has to, this guy's got to come face to face with the consequences of his sinful choices. And so uh, here in our society, like I said, we're going to sit down and say to you, you can't do that. I'm gone. See ya. All right. It's a little different. Corinth, there's no place to go. You ain't going to church down the street because there isn't any. There isn't any churches, like I said, 50, 100 miles away. So it's a little different world that we live in. And, uh, you know, I get people who have come in here because they got in trouble somewhere else. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't judge them. We wait to see how they do. So uh, deliver such a one to the state. That's quite a statement. Verse 6, here's now to the point. Your glorying is not good. You being in support of this guy and allowing this person to continue doing is a bad thing. Why? Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole loaf. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he, he calls back to Passover. He said, Christ came to be our Passover. Now, Passover week, and we've talked about it just recently quite extensively, right? Because we've been coming up to Easter time talking about Passover week and Jesus on the Passover. But tied in with that festival is the festival of unleavened bread. And the Jews to this day, 
to this day. You can go down in New York City and places where they are, you'll see it. Uh, and all around the world, they get themselves a big old kettle and they put it outside in the front of their house, make a fire under it, and everything in that house goes in that kettle. And they boil everything. They boil bed sheets and towels and clothes and socks and curtains. If it's anything, they boil it. Purpose of it is to kill any yeast. It's a very big deal with the Jewish people. And that's why he uses it here as a thing. He says, uh, get rid of that yeast. Purge out the leaven, he said. Or in other words, sin... is contagion. Sin is contagion. It's contagious. And so he says, just like they'd say, well, we've got to get all the yeast out of our house because the unleavened feast of unleavened bread's coming. There can't be any yeast. Boil the sheets and the pillows and everything. Great big old kettle. And you, and you, you can see them. They have pictures of people doing it, even in New York City. Boiling everything in the house. Why? Because they're going to make sure there is no yeast in their house. None of it. And he says, that's the way we need to do. Jesus was the Passover, or remember, you took a lamb, and you brought the Passover lamb, and you sacrificed it. He said, well, Jesus is that. So our job doing, after he made the Passover sacrifice, our job is to clean out the yeast. Get rid of it. Boil it away. Make sure there isn't any left. All right. He says, verse 8, therefore, keep the feast. Not with old leaven. Get rid of the yeast. Neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. All right. He says, that's a problem with sin. It's, it's wickedness that it moves around through a congregation. It's malice. It, it goes through the congregation with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He said, that's what we want. We're going to get rid of those things that are contagious to other people. That guy's got to go. He's got to go. You cannot allow that to stay there and then say, don't we have the best church? We're the king of churches. That's what he was said in chapter 4. That's what they said. You reign like kings. You've got it all figured out. Your church is marvelous. No, it's not. you got this poison contagion of sin that you're keeping in and you don't have any intention of getting rid of it. Now I'm telling you, it's got to go. He goes on a little further, verse 9. I wrote unto you an epistle not to accompany with fornicators or people that practice sexual sins aren't going to be the people you hang around with. You can't do that. You can't hang around with those kind of people. Yet, verse 10, not all together with the fornicators of this world, or covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, then you must needs go out of the world. He said, I understand as you go walking down the street, and you go in the store to buy something, you can't say, are you a fornicator? If you are, I'm not buying. (laughs) You can't do that. He said, you have to live in the world with these kind of people who are doing that. But he said, you don't have to have them in your church. You can't put the seal of approval on and say, hey, it's okay. Come on down to church. It's okay. Bring your mother and stepmother with you. It'll be great. No, it's not great. He said, so I understand. 
I told you, stay away from them. You're not to be friends with them. And they live in a society in Corinth where, like, Diana is a great goddess. You know, they, they worship Diana. And why? Because the temple is full of prostitutes. And almost all of the gods they worship fill the temple up with prostitutes. And he says, it's everywhere around you, and you can't go out and just join up and say, hey, you're having a dinner here for Diana. I think I'll come. No, 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 no. no. He says, you cannot be near it. Why? Because it's leaven. It's yeast. It's a contagion. And it's going to get you. You think you're stronger than it. You're not. Verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetousness, or an idolater, or a railer, hard to get along with, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. And so if you've got people in the church that are exceptionally gone off in any one of these courses, and that's quite a few there. He didn't just mention fornication, though that was the example he gave. He said, you got people who are known drunkards, all right? Don't sit with them in church and say, come on over, we'll all have a barbecue. No, no. I want you to cut off that relationship, particularly if you have embraced it and brought it into the church. We got to deal with that. And that's not fun. Not fun to do, all right? But they were proud of it. They were proud of it. And that's where it's really got under his skin. Verse 12. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? All right? He says, we can't go down the street in every house and say, let's see, you're a fornicator. And you're an idolater, and you're this, and you're that. All right? Some churches have taken that up and have done that. It says we're not out there to be a judge for them. But within, within, we have to. It's our responsibility to keep those things from getting whole. So we're going to purge out. Jesus Christ paid a price for sin. So what? So that we don't have to live among it. We don't have to be brought under its power. We can be free from it. All right? Verse 13, but judge them. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore put away from among you yourselves that wicked person. All right? You say, well, we don't know what to do with him. He said, put him out. God will do what he can. Now, what's God going to do? He's going to give him a chance to repent. He's going to give him a chance to turn around. He's going to give him a chance to say, man, I wish I hadn't done that. And that's what he's going to do because that's God. But you're going to have to leave that to God because he's much too entrenched in it for you to stop it. Because you took him in. said, yeah, he's the guy. We all want him. No. And he says, put that wicked person away from you. So that's a pretty powerful indictment against the church in Corinth. That they have embraced this particularly obnoxious kind of sin and patted a guy on the back and said, hey, I'm glad you're a part of our church. Right? Well, 
That's not how it's to go. So that's a tough passage. And you got to deal with that question when he says, deliver them to Satan, what's going on? Well, destruction of the flesh, but the soul can be saved. And uh, God's the one that's going to take care of that. So I'm never going to say, I'm sending you out to Satan. I'm not going to say that. Uh, but we may have to say someday, we hope never, but we might have to say someday, if you're just not going to repent and you're going to keep doing this kind of stuff, you can't do it here. We can't let it be here. Because of why? Because you are required to get the yeast out. We're going to have a feast of unleavened bread. And that's the Old Testament coming over into the New. Passover, Christ the Lamb is sacrificed. And he says, that sacrifice stands as the best one ever, the final one that's ever needed. And what does it mean? It means we follow along and get rid of the yeast. The contagion of sin has to go. Okay? So, well, there's a couple. Now they're not feeling so hot down there in Corinth. He said, you thought you were kings. He said, look at us. And we got a church you wouldn't believe. Yeah, let me point this out here. Maybe they were getting a little less of that cocky attitude when after he says that. And he'll, he'll get after them. Uh, he'll keep going. He'll get after them and push some of these points home. Pointed, why? To keep it squared away. Keep the church going in the right direction. Remember, Corinthians is written what? How do you run a church? Chapter 1, first thing, he said, all right, what's this book about? It's how do you run a church? How do you operate a church? And he just told us, if you got that, this is what you got to do. Excommunicate, out he goes. And we hope to save his soul by doing that. Because we certainly aren't helping him, leaving him in with us, do whatever he feels like. Okay? Well, how does that make you feel? Wow. That's quite a thing. Yeah. Quite a thing. Right? More to come. More to come as we go on in Corinthians. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much.